This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having John Romanello here. Roman Fitness Systems, a mentor, future mentor to me, Petey Mo. He likes to talk about himself in the third person, as do I. Um, filled with sarcasm, filled with wisdom. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show, and we appreciate you coming in. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here in person. I Excellent. Like so um, so you, you've done a lot through through the years, kind of started from the bottom, now we're here, kind of. That is you correct, know, yes. uh, I guess that's a Drake or some other I believe that musician. is Drake, yeah. It I is, think sure. That is correct, yes. Uh, interesting uh, music video with uh, working in the uh, supermarket, I think, is, is where they started it. But, you know, you started out as a trainer and, you know, kind of risen through the, the fitness industry and I guess what hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll coin here the Halo sector um, and get to the point where now you're advising people and you're helping them write books and you're helping them get their voice and their brand out there. Um, so, you know, just to start out, you know, we, we were just talking uh, offline here about, you know, society and how we can maybe change people's behaviors. Um, so we'll, we'll pick up on that, but maybe uh, for the people that don't know who you are, maybe just, you know, give your quick background and then you and I could riff away until we decide the tape runs out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the abridged version. Oh, goodness. What's the right entry point? Um, I don't know, man. There's nothing special about me. I'm just a kid from Long Island. <laughs> what, what town are you from? I am from Glen Cove. All right, I'm from Westbury. So. Okay, I'm familiar. Clark yeah. High School. You got, a, you got a great mall over there? Yeah, we got a good mall. Yeah, um, you know, Drinking beers out of cans back in the day. So I, in terms of fitness got really into it uh, in my personal life. I went through a body transformation when I was 20. Everything in my life changed as tends to happen. And then my my career in fitness started uh, really as a way to procrastinate on real life, in particular grad school. Mm -hmm. I was really passionate about fitness and I wanted to just do that. And uh, I also wasn't sure what else I would have wanted to do. And then it started out as a job and then turned into a personal training company and then it turned into a career. And at some point, I suppose I'll have to get a real job, um, if you ask my mom. But uh, we are now, I mean, Jesus, I got my first fitness article published in 2002, so it's 17 years later. Mm -hmm. Several ebooks and courses and sites, 500 or so articles, a best selling book, and uh, several thousand clients later. And here we are. That's great. So, you know, what would be some of the uh, advice you have for people that, that, that want to continue to procrastinate coming out of school? And, you know, obviously it's much more mainstream now to, you know, become a personal trainer or work in, in the halo sector and not have to go and uh, go to men's warehouse down on old country road and buy a, a couple of suits and everything but, the, everything but the, uh, everything but the shoes, I think was the, the men's I warehouse that, back that in the was, day. I, the advice I would give is take the time <laughs> to figure out um, what you like learning and then learn it. And <clears throat> if it is important to you, whether that means you know, for your family or for you personally to go to college, I, I'm not one of those entrepreneurs that says people should not go to college. Firstly, I, I absolutely acknowledge the, the, the university bubble and the rising cost of education. Mm -hmm. And I, I also acknowledge that there's absolutely no guarantee that going to college will get you a job of any kind, but it is still important. It's part of the fabric of, of our society. And there are people who, who want to have that experience. But my advice would be, that if you do go that route, study things that you want to and use that as a time of experimentation. And in particular, spend time learning the things that do not 
lose their value. I mm-hmm. think that people should really be taking economics classes. I think people should be taking marketing classes. I certainly think people should be taking writing and history classes. Uh, you know, do we need more calculus? Probably not unless it's part of what you do. But I, I think that there's no downside to knowing the history of the world. I think there's no downside to knowing the events that led up to our current political climate. Mm-hmm. And certainly learning how to write is is something about which I'm very passionate and and I think is um, universal. That is that's never gonna go anywhere. Everything yeah. else, you know, it's really it really depends. Well, I, I studied a lot of religion in college because I was interested in it. I don't think that it helped me in any significant way, but it makes me a great conversationalist because I know about a lot of things and knowing about a lot of things and being able to talk about them doesn't, it, it never hurts. There's no, there's absolutely no downside. It's all upside. So yeah, if you're going to go to school, study things that you're interested in. And then if you are, you know, as, as you mentioned, it is now much easier for people to make the decision to enter into whether it's the health field or some sort of online career. Uh, you know, we were, we were blazing that trail many years ago, but now, uh, you, you know, it, it seems that everybody has, an intrinsic understanding that they can be, you know, a YouTuber or an influencer of some kind. So yeah. I think that uh, it depends on, you know, where we're going with that remains to be seen. Yeah. I'm picking up on your point about, uh, about history and, and the value of it. Um, when I was in, back in business school, we did a case on the, uh, on the railroads. Mm-hmm. And I remember somebody during the class said like, why are we talking about the railroads? Like, why is that important? You know, and I said, well, and the professor said, well, look, everything comes down. The railroad used to be like this wholly fragmented industry where, you know, it was like a rail to each, you know, city and that was it. And then, it, you know, every, every industry kind of consolidates into like the big three and basically like the internet turned into, you know, basically the big three, whether that's, you know, Facebook, Google, and, you know, let's say Apple, I guess is probably the big three when it comes to that. Um, so history just repeats itself just in a different form. And it seems like, uh, on the political side, you know, I would agree with you that history repeats itself as well, just based on human behavior and, and psychology and what you can convince people. So maybe just on the side of convincing people, you know, how do you, in, in your fitness side and, and getting people to change their life, you know, what, 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 what route do you go down to try and get people to, to have the self-awareness to say, Hey, look, you can look like I, I do. And it's actually not as hard as you think it is, or, you know, you don't have to be in this physical condition. The primary thing is to enter that conversation through the other person's door mm-hmm. and try and have an understanding of their mental state, the language that they use, what, what they're saying to themselves, what they think their challenges are. Most fitness professionals uh, or all, you know, they, they and, and this, this holds true for marketers as well. They enter into any conversation with an understanding of what they believe someone's issues are or Mm -hmm. motivations might be. And if you have these conversations with people, you realize that what you think is, you know, everybody's trying to create a a program for busy parents or it's, you know, it's a busy professional's guide to getting fit. Most people understand that they are going to prioritize things that are important to them, that they can carve out an hour here or there. The place that they struggle is understanding what to do with that hour and their misinterpretation of how many hours they need to spend learning 
how to fill that one hour per day. And they believe that they have to sort of have this, you know, incredible level of education, learning which of these many, many diets to use or navigate or which of these training regimens to follow. They think they have to go through all of that education before they can then figure out what do I do with this one hour I'm able to carve out before work in the morning. Mm -hmm. And so if you have the conversation with them and help them see that it's like it, the best thing to do is just pick one or two of these things and focus on that. And you don't need to go through, you know, a, a university level course in biomechanics or nutritional science you can do these things, then from there, it becomes easier. Everybody has a different reason to do anything, and they have a thousand different reasons not to do something. And the only way you get there is by those conversations. And that is really what we try to do on the marketing side. When we write these epic long sales pages, it's, it's an attempt, it's sort of scattershot with an attempt to slowly hone in on what's the thing standing in the way and, and really blocking this person's ability to see they can make this change and that this change could be sustainable. And because certain companies, certain philosophies are very good at that by, by dialing their message down to one thing, that's where you have people erroneously believing that this one thing rather than a series of lifestyle changes can fix everything. And so they, whether it is a supplement or whether it is just, quote, going paleo or keto or whatever else, that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. And so it's it's really, I think people come in and the, it, it's, it's sort of an inverted triangle. And they are very aware of how heavy, the, wide this base is at the top. And we need to narrow their focus a little bit. But when you narrow it down to too much where it's just this one thing, now you, you get into the whole magic bullet sort of conundrum. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it sounds one thing that, that you're always listening is, is the Absolutely. first thing. And then the second thing is it sounds like you're, you become educated on things that, that you might not understand, or maybe there's something new and you want to become an expert on it as quickly as possible. Yeah. But I, I also think it's understanding that you're potential client, whomever you're trying to help, they have a level of understanding where they need to get to mm -hmm. before they're willing to try anything. And we need to meet them where they're at, not only with regard to what information they already have, but what information they want. How, how can we give them enough information to excite them about how this method or modality can elicit change without overwhelming them with jargon. And mm -hmm. it's just, it becomes an ongoing conversation with your, uh, with your, your audience. And right. that becomes, you know, your brand or content narrative. So how do you, how have you, you know, kind of morphed into, you know, look, I've got a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I've got a one-on-one -on -one training session. I'm helping that person. I know I'm helping them. And then thinking about, you know, it's your name on the door. So like you're responsible, you're, you are the brand mm -hmm. and you know how you felt comfortable figuring out how to scale that to the, to the point you have, which is, you know, not many people are, are able to get to that level. For me, it was just writing. It was mm -hmm. understanding that I could communicate directly with one individual 10,000 times mm -hmm. instead of thinking, how can I write something that communicates with 10,000 people or a million people. <clears throat> I'm just having that one-on-one -on -one conversation in this article, and I hope that 
10,000 people are willing to have it with me, but mm-hmm. when they read the article. And for some people, it's a miss, and for others, it's a hit. And wanting to keep that conversation going is what drives the business. And that is the heart of effective content creation. It's understanding that this person wants to keep talking to you. And then what's the next thing they want to read and the thing after that. And just continuing to write articles. And the only real way to do it with panache, with a way that's going to to really drive a business, at least if you're a personal brand, Mm -hmm is to pepper in the information with things beyond what they need, with stuff about, you know, in my case, the the music I listen to or the the films that I like or the books that I read. And when they start to attach to those things, then over time you become their guy. Because if eventually they're going to hire an online fitness coach or hire a business coach or hire someone for writing, why, if they have a choice between five different people who are roughly equally qualified, why would they not choose the person who loves their favorite TV show or who was, you know, at some of the same music festivals that they were at in 2003, listening to bands that nobody listens to anymore. That stuff is really how you connect with an audience long-term. And for me, doing it through writing and, and for my clients, that is really the entry point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as you see more and more um, people, you know, coming on and trying to live a healthy, active lifestyle, but you also see you know, more and more of these sugar-based concoctions and these bigger bags of uh, Doritos and, you know, the serving sizes. Like you go into, uh, I was in an airport yesterday and you see like, okay, here's all like supposedly the healthy snacks, but it's like, you know, six serving sizes Mm -hmm. multiplied by by 10. So I'm actually taking down like 60 grams of sugar, which is basically like 15 teaspoons of sugar. And somebody's thinking that, okay, I'm doing something good for myself. So how do, how do you think, when, when do we get a big enough voice or like, when do, when's there a tipping point where your voice, our halo movement, like we basically say, look, you know, the serving sizes are one, you know, and like, the, the, we're going to hold you to that. You know, the amount of, you know, processed foods that, that are going to be out there. Like, how do we, how do we get, how do we change the, the demand? And maybe that kind of dictates the fact that they're supplying this garbage, you know, somehow goes, gets off some of the shelves. Well, who's they in this case? So I'm talking about like some of these, uh, the processed food companies and, and, you know, everyone is made, you know, from Mars bar to, um, you know, Frito-Lay, mm-hmm. you know, I so, feel like there's still demand for that because they price it cheap enough and they still have the shelf space and we're, we're, they're, they're still I mean, generating it's volume. It's also still fucking delicious. So, I mean, there's nothing <laughs> that anyone's going to do right. that's going to make a Snickers bar anything less than fucking delicious. Yeah. And I mean, it's a hyper palatable food and it is, you know, it, do like how, how deep into the idea of a nanny state do we want to get where it's going to be for us, the educated oligarchy to determine what can be produced because we want to protect people from themselves because they can't be trusted to educate themselves about what is and isn't good. And, you know, to, to, observe serving sizes or like every bag you open ha- it, we have to assume you're going to finish that entire bag like, yeah no you know, these like, are good points like, like you know you got to wear a seatbelt for a reason right you got to wear a helmet right. to and, protect yourself so and there are plenty you know, no food is is intrinsically bad all the time and even the foods that are bad are good and you know like is it because they taste so good like the they, yeah of course I, I mean, I mean Reese's peanut butter cups I'll throw down a couple of those I, I'm, I'm with you on that because they the problem with food 
is that it's not just food. We don't say, let's go out for food. We say, let's go out for Italian, let's go out for sushi, let's go out for Mediterranean. We identify entire cultures based not on the art they create, not on the music that they create, but on what they offer for the world to eat. That is how we identify. And in our language, it is encoded with how we are going to interact culturally with that food. I mean, if you go to New York, if you come here to New York and you leave without eating, a slice of pizza or getting a bagel like did you really go to new york right. it's for me going to a city and eating food that the locals eat the way that the locals eat it is it's by far a greater experience of of like diving into a culture than looking at a church like i when i went to rome like right. i didn't go to the vatican i didn't poke my head in and like stare up at the ceiling like everyone else i found a couple of locals and I said take me where you eat right. so food isn't just food it is a cultural expression it is a social activity and it has emotional attachment for all of us so to to try and and you know assuming that there were there were a way or there was a clear path to getting frito lay to stop producing sun chips like, why would I want them to stop producing sun chips? Because for me, sun chips remind me of when I was, you know, 21 years old and I was a camp counselor. Where was that, by the way? It was on Long Island at North Shore Day Camp oh, okay. in Glen Cove. Yeah. When I was, I went know, to Pierce Day Camp. So, oh, okay, yeah, so, like, yeah, yeah, back yeah in the very day. familiar. So, yeah. a little little rivalry there. Yeah. And, and so, Glen Cove versus and Clark Russell. as well. Did you play sports there? I did. Yeah, I was oh. a, I was a wrestler and played footballs. Okay. But my what point what is year were you there, by the way? I graduated in 2000. Okay. So 96, right. 2000. So my point is that everybody's attachment to these items is, is it, it's cultural, it's social, it's emotional, it's personal. And so, you know, outlawing them or, or getting, you know, these recipes changed, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's really an exercise in futility because we see what happens when we try to outlaw something, right? Like you outlaw alcohol to protect people from themselves, and then you have the rise of, of gangsters, and, and right. you know you that have, are now you have, public companies and billionaires, right? <laughs> yeah, you have you have thirty years of of like bootlegging and violence. Where if right. if, alcohol, if prohibition had never come around, like who knows how the history of the country would have played out differently? And you know you you have you empowered drug cartels for years by you know like funding the war on drugs. And it's like, okay, let's, let, let's allow marijuana to be the entry point. And now cannabis is a huge industry. I know you're interviewing people about the cannabis mm-hmm. startup scene. And, uh, you know, Colorado has a, has a tax surplus likes of which few, few states have ever seen. Yeah. And it's slowly uh-huh. becoming like, okay, well, how do we get a part of that? And they're not seeing a rise in crime. They're seeing a decrease in crime for one primary reason. There are fewer crimes to prosecute because now you've, you've eliminated an entire sect of what's illegal. Well, also, I mean, if you're, if you got a good edible, you're probably not going to do not, something yeah. except just laugh your ass off and have a, right. have a good time and not try and break anything. So I right. think that, you know, the, the equalizer, the great equalizer is education right. and right. how much we can do to educate people, um, on a, on a sort of general level on the, you know, I think if we're, if we're really looking to affect long-term change, then educating kids about nutrition when they're young but then we have to tread very carefully 
because food isn't just food and educating kids about nutrition isn't just educating them about nutrition. We can't look at it the same way we look at like sex education, which is absolutely necessary, but going too deep into educating kids, kids about nutrition, if they're, if they're, that's not happening in the right environment and it's, it's happening concomitant with all of these competing messages about how they're supposed to look or present. Now, you know, we're potentially fostering eating disorders. And so we mm-hmm. have to figure out a way to have these conversations <clears throat> with our youth that, you know, is about like health and longevity. But at the same time, now we are fighting the same uphill battle that has been fought by every older generation since the dawn of time. And that's convincing kids that they're not fucking invincible. Right, sure. Which we were, right? Of, of course, course, growing yeah. up. I mean, you know, they're busy, they're busy knowing deep in their hearts that they will never grow old or die. Right, and right, right. now, you know, it's the, it, so there are no easy answers here, but I think that, Education has to be the always the first line of defense, and we have to understand that there are people for whom that will not make a difference because we have been educating people about smoking and its danger for a very long time, and people are still buying cigarettes at twenty dollars a pack. It's it's insane to me when I meet people younger than me who smoke. This to me is absolutely mind boggling. Like how how did they get you? How how did they not you know? But it happens, and so I will say that um, I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow or paraphrase uh, Obama here. I think that with health, it's like history. The arc is long, but it bends in a particular direction. So, in, you know, Obama says it bends towards justice. I think that um, in the long run, the arc of of education with regard to health is long, but it bends in the right direction. It bends toward people having greater personal responsibility and making choices that run counter to that with a a greater awareness of how that could affect them instead of Mm -hmm. total ignorance. And I certainly think that on the whole, millennials are healthier than people, um, you know, than baby boomers. And, you know, you, you, you see quite a few millennials smoking, but not compared to that generation. And when they're smoking, they're doing it in the context of a generally healthy lifestyle where they are, you know, being aware of their food intake. And so, you know, we're not, we're not able to eradicate uh, obesity on a broad scale with, with a, a single campaign, just like we couldn't eradicate smoking. But we didn't make smoking illegal. Now, obviously, there's some lobbyist interest there, but it's also like people have the right to smoke. They just don't have the right to destroy other people's lives while they're doing right. it. So yeah, when we tell people that you used to be able to smoke at a bar, you know, and you you right. have to you have to dry or clean your clothes every every night, right? Yeah, the last four the last four rows of the plane, right, with the ashtrays. Right. So uh, yeah, so, so <clears throat> they used to have they used to have ashtrays in in Italy in the uh, in the strength section of uh, of some of the gyms there. My buddy used to live in Milan. Yeah. They used to have a smoking section yeah. in the gym uh, I, back in the nineties. It's but there are, there are people who um, to this day feel that like there should be they should be allowed to smoke wherever they want and it should be incumbent not on them to find a place to smoke but rather on the people who are bothered by it to find somewhere where there isn't smoking right um, I, you know I, and i have friends who uh, one of my one of my friends mothers owns a bar and uh, this, she's in columbus ohio and when the no smoking laws came down they just thought it was going to crush their business and it did nothing because People will just be like, all right, I'll deal with this because I still want to drink alcohol, right. which also isn't good. But since, you know, in, in it, every single culture in recorded history 
has found a way to ferment something and drink it to have a euphoric experience mm-hmm. to to celebrate or solemnify something. We've been getting drunk at weddings and funerals since we had weddings and funerals, and right. that isn't going away either. And so I think it comes down to asking ourselves, like, what do we actually want to happen in an ideal world? Do we want hyper-palatable, nutritionally deficient foods to go away? Probably not. I think that what we would really like is for people to be making generally more responsible decisions with their health in terms of nutrition. Um, and I think they are. I think if you if you look at, at younger people, there's a greater awareness. I, I don't, well, you know, again, don't want to encourage eating disorders, but I, I think that, you know, when I was eight, I had absolutely no ideas what calories were. And I wasn't, when I was 12, I didn't ask how much protein was in something yeah. and kids today do. So there is, I mean, a I think we used, we used to uh, eat like a meatball hero and, uh, and uh, chocolate milk before like a basketball game. You thought that, that, that was, was like, that was the best nutrition you could, that was the only thing on the menu, right? Right. Back in and it the, was whatever was in the lunch. Elementary school. You know, so I schools. think that things are getting generally better. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just personally, stand strongly against fear mongering because uh-huh. I, I don't think that it does anyone any good. So yeah, I know you 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 help entrepreneurs and, and you invest in some brands. What, what where do you see the biggest opportunities? Whether it's you know for for change or whether it's for you know spawning out you know niches of the the health and fitness and the halo sector that that you that's, you know we invested in infrared sauna mm-hmm. concept company a couple of years ago called Higher Dose. Now that's kind of pretty mainstream. So what do you see come down the pike? Given that you're on the pulse of new ideas and new interesting research and yeah i think wearable tech is really going to be pretty prolific i i think in particular uh once they find a way to make um like heads up displays reasonably cool looking so there's one company i forget the name of it that has some some eyeglasses coming out that mm-hmm. you can connect through bluetooth with your watch or your phone or whatever and like things will come up i think that that's definitely going to become more popular i think that more and more, we're gonna just have. So I, I don't know if you if you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, but Elon Musk was on it, and he mentioned uh, they were also high as motherfuckers while they were going through this. So, but he did mention that we're already sort of like making these consistent negotiations and agreements to becoming more like cyborgs. And he says, "What is what's in the way right now? It's not it, it's not some sort of ethical problem. It's an interface problem. We're all on our phones all the time. Right, right. These things are attached to us, and it is only the fact that it, you know we're interfacing slowly with it that keeps us from." being being, you know, more cyborgs and that many of us, if we can have these heads up displays right over our eye and see the information right as it comes up, we'll mm-hmm. do that. And then, you know, there's a larger question of like, do we get people to detox and all of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think, I think wearable tech is going to be pretty significant. And then, you know, I also, I think, um, I obviously CBD and cannabis is huge. I think mm-hmm. that's going to continue to grow, but beyond that, you know, it's just going to be new variations on everything else. Like, if you look at some of the stuff that's most exciting, like, I, I, if you look at my Instagram, 
I honestly, I follow very few health accounts, but I follow a lot of junk food accounts because it's like a guilty pleasure for me and I'm super into it. And every time <laughs> Oreos comes out with a limited edition flavor, I get my ass to, to wherever I got to go and I buy like, great. oh, s'mores flavored Oreos? Fuck yeah, let me get in that. <laughs> but I do think that what that shows us is that most people have they, they like variation from a hub mm-hmm. and we're going to see a lot of that and and you'll see where whatever's gaining traction uh we'll just there'll be offshoots of that in much the same way that in the health space or the, the fitness space crossfit really exploded over the past couple of years and now you see sort of hybridizations of that or even dilutions of it so there's a great company called f45 yep, sure. which is just 45 minute high intensity interval classes with weight. So it's very much like CrossFit light. It's, mm-hmm. they're not doing crazy Olympic lifting. Just about anyone can do it. They're, they're not, uh, the programming is, is very much metabolic and doesn't have a lot of strength work, but it's really, you know, you're going to get all of the, like the fat loss and physique benefits that you would get from CrossFit without any of the high risk stuff. And it's a great franchise. And then there's this other one called burn, which is uh, over here, um, in nomad, or flat iron, and it's like B R R R R N, like refrigerated. Burr. It's a, yeah, workouts. it's basically CrossFit in fifty degrees, and because mm-hmm. now there's this like super niche that says, okay, well, if you're really cold, you are going to activate brown adipose tissue, and then there's obviously you're getting all the benefits of cryotherapy plus all the benefits of high intensity interval training, and you know you can get them at the same time. Your body has to work extra hard to heat itself up, so uh-huh. you're just going to see for the time being, I think, a lot of offshoots of the mainstream. And then once technology gets to the point where we can do other stuff, uh, we'll go from there. It's, you know, and, and it's really difficult to predict because these things happen one step at a time. And we think that we're so smart and we want to predict them 10 steps at a time. Mm -hmm. But if you look at at the way that we thought we'd be living in 2020 in in 2020 in 1980, like we were wrong about almost all of it. And we thought we wanted things that we don't. Mm -hmm. When you watch you know, the Jetsons, we thought it would be flying cars and, you know, like we thought everyone would communicate through screens and holograms, right? If So there's all these scenes where somebody would call George Jefferson or if you watch Back to the Future 2 mm-hmm. where somebody calls Marty McFly or if you watch Total Recall from the 80s, Arnold's character, and the whole wall turns into a screen and this person just starts talking to them or yeah, at them, right? We have that ability now. We have the ability to just call someone on FaceTime, but we fucking hate it. It is. It feels it's like an so intrusion. Intrusive. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. firstly anyone who calls me without first texting to say, "Hey, do you have five minutes for a phone call?" Right. I'm not picking up that call yeah, unless yeah. it's my mother. And in which case, I think it's an emergency, which right. it is never an emergency. And it, <laughs> but we have like we've made all these social concessions. Where now, like, we realize that, oh, like, when people used to just, do you remember, like, before cell phones, like, when you had a house phone and there was no call, no caller ID, somebody called, some random person would call your house and you picked up and you had no idea who it was. Now that we have these abilities, we could not have predicted in 1985 and 1990 that although 
we could look at the person talking to us, the person to whom we probably want to speak on our phone, we could not have predicted that doing it without scheduling would feel like a tremendous intrusion. Like you think, firstly, you're just entitled to my time whenever you want it without sure. scheduling me first. And you're also entitled to see where I am, who I'm with, what I'm doing, that mm-hmm. you get to see as well as hear me. I don't, you don't even get to lie to you and tell you I'm doing something else if I don't <laughs> want to talk to you. And if I don't pick up, I'm an asshole. Right, right, like, right. Instead, there's a survey that showed in 2017, 86% of interpersonal communication was written. So text messages, emails, DMs, some sort of social media interaction. Now, the great thing there is it shows me that we had in 1980 through 1990, we had no idea what we would want in 2020 because Mm -hmm. these things don't happen in a vacuum, right? We all think we want flying cars until people are still shitty drivers and they get into accidents and then the cars fall out of the sky and we realize that's probably not a tenable idea. And instead of people talking to each other through screens all the time, we've taken steps backwards. We are now writing letters to each other over and over and over. Now, they're very short letters, sometimes 140 characters, mm-hmm. and, and they're being sent instantly. But the way that we communicate now through texting has a lot more in common with sending letters back and forth across the Atlantic by ship mm-hmm. than it does with the video calls that we saw in the Jets. And sure. that is a choice we have made collectively as a society. And so I think it's really important when we start looking at predicting technology to try not to go more than two steps ahead because we will invariably get it wrong mm-hmm. because we have absolutely no idea what we're going to want 10 steps from now until we get to that ninth step and then we get to make that decision in context. Mm-hmm. So when, uh, when you're investing and when you're advising people, you know, obviously you've got a, you've got a lot of deep experience and you've tried a lot of things and you've, you've helped a lot of uh, companies you know, do you kind of help them say, look, let's have some people come in here and say, yeah, here's my five year plan. I'm going to get to a five hundred million dollar company. I'm like, well, let's have like a 12 month plan. Let's have like a 24 month plan. And who knows what's going to really happen if they're because you don't have a crystal ball. I'm agreeing with you. Let's just get to a point where you got a sustainable business that helps people and solves a frustration and that you can do profitably. And that's what a company is supposed to be. Just solve a frustration in a profitable way. So, you know, when you, when you have people come to you and they've got a vision, I, I use this term dream architect, which obviously you are, you know, help take someone's dream and architect it into reality. You know, how do, how do you, um, you know, obviously you can, you just say it, but, you know, say, look, you know, kind of tighten this up. Like, let, let's do like this, these first 10 steps instead of just trying to think about where you're going to be. Right. I mean, I think that a big thing is trying not to predict massive changes to human behavior, mm-hmm. but rather trying to elicit a change in the behavior of an individual human. Mm-hmm. And again, we we can't predict that we can't gainsay humanity as a whole, humanity as a whole, and say that we're all going to be okay giving up um, driving cars and all just you know that that um, driverless cars can be the next thing. Mm-hmm. But we all agree that it would certainly solve a lot of problems, and we're willing to do it. And so, what will probably happen is when you look at something like that, over time, 
the the steps that are taken to go from you know like now very more and more people opt not to own cars because it is a roughly comparable economic decision to take Uber everywhere. That's right. a very big thing in Los Angeles. When you start thinking about the cost of your car, your monthly payment, your insurance, yeah. your gas, mm-hmm. then but we couldn't have made that decision when Uber first started. And so now driverless Ubers, okay, the cost goes down because we don't need to pay for we don't need to pay drivers anymore. So now they can be automatic. And then from there, like our attachment to the idea of what a car is shifts. And now all of a sudden, everyone having electric cars makes a lot more sense because, you know, like we're all super into Teslas because the only car you get to drive and also be saving the world at the same time. And so what what I usually tell people is if you can figure out how to solve a problem that exists now and then spend some time thinking about how you can adapt that technology to solve the problems adjacent to it Mm -hmm. and then start thinking, well, what else comes up now that I don't have to think about this anymore? Now, what else will come up? And so I, I, my investment thesis personally is to invest in companies that are no more than two steps away from something where I have a lot of interest or Mm -hmm. knowledge, because that is not only a smart decision for me, it also puts me in the position to be the greatest asset to the company in terms of leveraging my network or my existing brand power or or creating partnerships for them and the other people with whom I work. That's great. Well, in, in wrapping up here, um, I look forward to sharing with you my uh, my outline of my book. Absolutely, I think uh, everybody should, um, you know, check out John's blog and also, you know, head to your website and and uh, some of your your materials here to get some more knowledge on how to be a better person, how to be a better professional, and uh, how to laugh about it as well. I tell people we're on a planet moving sixty six thousand miles an hour around a fireball that's 95 million miles away so let's enjoy the ride and uh appreciate getting to know you and uh, look forward to uh tracking your frequent and uh future successes thank you very much i really appreciate being here and uh for everyone listening thanks so much for the time thanks